Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Across the Street. Today, we're going to do the next in our five-part installment where we learn about our veterans and who they are in the context of what conflicts they participated in. Today, we'll be discussing Operation Enduring Freedom, or OEF, and Operation Iraqi Freedom, or OIF, with Dr. Blair Glasgow. Y'all probably remember her from our Korean War episode, but just to refresh your memory, she is herself an Army veteran who was active duty from 2012 until 2019 and served all over the world, including Korea. And most recently, she is a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Anti-Racism Committee at Duke in the Department of Medicine and one of my fellow hospitalists here at the Durham VA. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, so we're going to talk about OEF, OIF today. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about your personal connection with that conflict. I personally was never deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, but many of my colleagues and the soldiers that I cared for were. I started internship in 2012 at Walter Reed, which is a big tertiary care military hospital in DC. And at that point, there were still a fair number of casualties coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, some of whom were you know, fighting for their lives in the ICUs. Others were continuing the very long process of repeated limb sparing surgeries and amputation revisions, and then just, you know, the physical and occupational and psychological rehabilitation process of learning to live with the physical and psychological injuries of war. So you saw the direct impact of service on some of your fellow young veterans. That must have been really hard. I did. The number of people that were walking around with amputations or wheeling around, or some of them even had these kind of beds that they could negotiate through hallways with so that they could be independent. That was, you know, a fixture of of my early years of residency. My most vivid memories from that time actually occurred on my first rotation as an intern. I was rotating on the psychiatry consult service and any hospitalized soldier returning from war got an automatic psych consult. So that's a lot of what I was seeing. One soldier I saw had been a very high level special operator. So think, you know, a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger, basically the best of the best mentally and physically. And he had sustained very high level amputation in an IED blast. So he essentially was left with a trunk only and no legs. His physical wounds had nearly healed and he was starting to talk with urology about options for urogenital reconstruction. And I just remember thinking how this guy was probably used to feeling nearly invincible given that all he had achieved in his life. And now he's not only sorting through what every day life was gonna look like, what was going to be his new purpose in life since the job he had dedicated his life to was no longer a possibility, but also was he going to be able to have children? And I think it left an impression on me because it was just so overwhelming to even empathize with, much less to even go through. Another one that sticks out was a young soldier and he had just returned to the U.S., but had undergone a BKA of one of his legs and then an AKA of the other at the U.S. Army Hospital in Germany. He had had a relatively uncomplicated course medically, 
doctors and nurses had all said that since arrival, he had been in great spirits and joking around with everyone, enjoying the fact that his family was visiting. And they all thought it was kind of odd because he didn't seem to be going through the expected grief of losing both of his legs. So when I came to see him, I requested his family leave the room so we could talk one-on-one. And I asked him, what do you think about when your family leaves for the day and you're alone with your thoughts at night? And I was kind of expecting him to say that, you know, that's when he would ruminate on his grief or his fears or have flashbacks or something. But in Instead, he went on to explain how his injury had happened that day. He said he and his unit had been out on a patrol mission and that his unit commander had actually been walking in front of him. Somehow, by chance, had missed the IED that he ended up stepping on. And he said what he would think about a lot at night when everyone was gone was how he was glad that it had happened to him rather than his commander so that the mission could go on. Now, I'm not sure if he always felt like that, and I'm sure that he eventually had to go through the rough grieving process and reimagining of his life, but the selflessness of someone who is, you know, barely out of childhood really shocked and humbled and motivated me that day. Wow, that is incredibly powerful, and and I know that a lot of the veterans that we serve here at the Durham VA that served in this conflict are similarly inspirational. At the Durham VA, we serve a little over 9,000 veterans who identify with this conflict, and the vast majority of them actually participated in the Persian War as well, which we heard about with Dr. Robert a few episodes previously. Uh, I do want to take this opportunity to plug the OEF-OIF clinic that we have downstairs on the first floor of the Durham VA. It offers a ton of resources for veterans who participated in this conflict in particular, and if you're interested in helping one of your patients get set up there, Veronica Oliver is the name of the person to speak to downstairs. Dr. Glasgow, tell us a little bit more about who these veterans are? Over 2.7 million American soldiers served in Iraq or Afghanistan, and over 50% of them went on more than one deployment. And I think that point is really important, and I'll demonstrate it by using my brother-in-law. So my brother-in-law, Nathan, went through officer basic training and ranger school, and then he proceeded to deploy six times to either Iraq or Afghanistan over the next seven years. So if you combine deployments and training for deployments, he was away from his home and family for at least two thirds of those seven years, which is pretty phenomenal. And that's, you know, he's he's probably on the higher end, but he's not some unusual exception. That was a lot of soldiers back then. And I think it's important to think about this when you when we tried to imagine the hardships that these veterans and their, their families experienced. It wasn't just physical danger that they went through, but just years of separation, which obviously can take a toll on your psyche and your relationships, even your ability to reintegrate back into the quote unquote real world. I think another point is that, you know, how do we recognize these veterans? Most of them right now are going to be in their 30s to 50s. But given the duration of the war, you know, now almost 20 years long, we could be serving veterans who served in Iraq or Afghanistan who are as young as their early 20s and as old as their 70s. Yeah, so definitely a wide range, but these are certainly the youngest veterans that we serve within the Durham VA. Um, And all the more reason, all the mental health things that Dr. Glasgow mentioned are reasons to plug these guys into the clinic downstairs if we're able to. So let's do a history lesson, if that's okay, just to kind of get the context for what all this fighting was about. So Dr. Glasgow, summarize it for us. What was this conflict? (laughs) I'm sure that's that's a loaded question. Yeah, it's quite complicated. Everyone knows it it basically started with 9-11. So 
Five days after 9-11, President George W. Bush announced the War on Terror, which at that time was an umbrella term for a series of preemptive strikes aimed at reducing the threat of future terrorist attacks on America. So airstrikes began first. They were soon followed by the ground invasion of Afghanistan in October of 2001, which is what started Operation Enduring Freedom, or OEF, which is a war that continues to this day. So why did the U.S., U.K., and other countries invade Afghanistan? And I think the big answers to those are Osama bin Laden, al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. Okay, so Dr. Glasgow, can you define those terms a little bit more? Like, what is the difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda? Absolutely. So the Taliban was a radical Islamic fundamentalist political and military organization. So it is not recognized by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. And it was known for enforcing a strict interpretation of Islamic Sharia law that was very harsh to many Afghans, especially women. So then how does al-Qaeda fit into that? How are they different? How do al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden factor in? So Bin Laden was the head of the militant and extremist organization called Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda was a bit different than the Taliban in that it was from publicly very early on denoted as a terror organization. Osama bin Laden was quickly identified as the person responsible for the attacks on 9-11. So how these two relate is that the Taliban had been hosting bin Laden as a guest in Afghanistan and allowing him to run his al-Qaeda network there. They also refused to turn bin Laden over to the U.S., which is why the U.S. invaded and worked with the Afghan Northern Alliance to overturn the Taliban regime. Got it. So they were affiliated, but not the same organization. Correct. Got it. Okay. All right. So let's move forward then. So we've invaded Afghanistan. What happened next? Other countries joined the U.S. in the fall of 2001, and the Taliban was removed from power within about two months. So by the end of 2001, the Taliban had been forced out of power and a transitional government was put into place. Osama bin Laden and many of his al-Qaeda troops escaped to Pakistan or hid out in the mountains of Afghanistan, but did not disband altogether. So in early 2002, the U.S. shifted towards the goal of rebuilding Afghanistan. And as early as May 2003, the Secretary of Defense declared an end to major combat. Around 8,000 U.S. forces were left in Afghanistan. The U.S. during this time committed to equipping and, and training Afghan security forces so that they eventually could take over the responsibility of protecting the country from the return of extremist organizations. In 2004, Hamid Karzai, who had been the head of transitional government when the Taliban was defeated, became the first democratically elected president of Afghanistan. Just a few weeks later, Osama bin Laden reemerged and vowed to restore freedom to Afghanistan. The Taliban gained momentum and power over time. When President Obama was elected in 2008, he actually recommitted to Afghanistan. So over the course of 2009, troop numbers increased to nearly 100,000 in order to fight the Taliban and again work on training Afghan forces with the goal of starting the drawdown of troops by summer 2011. May 2011 is when Osama bin Laden was found and killed. Then the drawdown didn't actually start until the end of 2011. Around this time, it was confirmed that the U.S. was holding preliminary peace talks with the Taliban, and the goal was set to remove all combat troops by 2014. Control of security in all provinces was transitioned to entirely Afghan forces by June of 2013. So it sounded like we were moving in the right direction. Were we ever able to actually get out, though? The answer is no. So full withdrawal never happened. And by 2017, the Islamic State, or ISIS, 
had emerged in Afghanistan. The Taliban was strong as ever, and the U.S. military described the war at that point as a stalemate. Along comes our third president of this conflict, so President Donald Trump. His original plan was to pull out of Afghanistan, but he announced in August of 2017 a plan for an open-ended military commitment to prevent the emergence of a, quote, vacuum for terrorists. The success of peace talks between the U.S. and Taliban waxed and waned through 2019, with the U.S. requiring that the Taliban not allow Afghanistan to be used for terrorist activities in exchange for a drawdown of American troops. Peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban finally started this past September, and the plan at that point was for the complete withdrawal date of May 1st, 2021. However, as you probably heard in the news just last week, President Biden announced a plan to withdraw all U.S. troops by 9-11-21, so this year on the anniversary of 9-11, which is nearly 20 years after the initial invasion. Wow. So there's a potential for an endpoint to this, but we've heard that before. <laughs> so we'll keep an Correct. eye on this. Yes. Uh, and I should say it's probably helpful to think about this conflict in two separate buckets. So we've talked about the conflict in Afghanistan, which was Operation Enduring Freedom. So let's shift focus a little bit to what happened in Iraq. Dr. Glasgow, tell us a little bit more about Operation Iraqi Freedom or OIF, which was happening in parallel. Correct. Yes. So Throughout 2002, as the U.S. was starting its rebuilding effort in, in Afghanistan, military and intelligence resources started shifting towards Iraq, which was thought to be the next big threat in the war on terror. The Bush administration argued that Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was supporting and working with terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and also developing, quote, weapons of mass destruction. Hussein himself had led chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare development programs earlier on in his tenure, even used them against his own people, as well as in the Iran and Iraq war. He had been forced after that time by the UN to disband these programs and to allow the UN to destroy the weapons he did have. But there was still concern there were still weapons being hid or even developed in Iraq, despite the fact that Hussein was certainly a brutal dictator and guilty of, of truly horrible things. Actual evidence of chemical or nuclear weapon development programs was scant. But the U.S. and the U.K. persisted in these assertions and invaded anyway. Saddam Hussein and both of his sons were captured and killed. Airstrikes started in 2003. Airstrikes failed on their own. So coalition ground forces were sent in and overwhelmed the Iraqi military forces pretty quickly. That was in April of 2003. While the coalition was nearly immediately successful in toppling the government and occupying most of the country, they didn't realize how divided the country was along sectarian lines. And so the subsequent attempt to form a democracy was fraught with difficulty. This had a lot to do with the fact that while Shiite Muslims were actually the majority in the country, Saddam Hussein was himself a Sunni and had led a Sunni-dominated regime despite the fact that they were the minority. So when the first election happened after the invasion occurred, a Shiite prime minister was elected to form a unity government with Shiite majority and Sunni and Kurdish minorities. In addition to this tension-filled political landscape, Al-Qaeda moved in after the U.S. occupation, both to destroy Shiite holy sites, as well as to fight against the U.S.-U.K. coalition and the Shiite majority in government. So this combination you know, of Iraqi political landscape, the presence of Al-Qaeda resulted in eight years of violence, which included civilian and soldier deaths from suicide bombings, IED blasts, and guerrilla attacks. 
Coalition forces over time started handing over control of the country to Iraqi forces after training and equipping them to take over security duties, but they had a hard time maintaining control against militant insurgent groups, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and criminal gangs. So back to President Obama, before he took office, Iraq actually agreed that the U.S. forces should withdraw by 2011. So that process started in 2009. 50,000 troops were left in the country until the end of 2011 to train, equip, and advise Iraqi security forces. The last combat troops left in December of 2011, and the war was officially considered over December 15, 2011. Unfortunately, the sectarian violence progressed into civil war over the next three years. Different militias that formed in Iraq during the war joined forces with extremist groups in Syria. Many of these were eventually absorbed by the Islamic State of Iraq and in Syria or ISIS by around 2014. So the precipitous rise of ISIS led the U.S. to re-engage in Iraq in around June 2014. And while now ISIS has mostly been driven out of Iraq, we still have U.S. soldiers there 18 years after the invasion and nine years after the official end of the war. How many Americans have served to date? In terms of service, 2.7 million American soldiers served in Iraq or Afghanistan. In Iraq, 32,000 of them were wounded in action and 4,400 died. In Afghanistan, over 20,000 were wounded and 2,400 died. We have over 1,500 amputees in our country as a result of the war. And then you know, those are just American troops. Wow, that is, that is tremendous. Yeah. Some of those losses on our side were due directly to combat, and some of the casualties were related to some of the exposures that they experienced as well. So tell us a little bit about the service experience in these wars. I think there's a number that we can talk about. And interestingly, you know, in this war, the DOD and the Department of Veterans Affairs started planning right after 9-11 happened to start collecting data on returning soldiers with the goal of preventing a Vietnam-type situation with you know, Agent Orange and other chemicals where we just had no idea. And so the first one we'll talk about, we'll talk about respiratory exposures. So these were really big in this war. Exposures included sand and dust and particulate matter from vehicle exhaust and construction sites, local farming, um, and most notably from burn pits. In terms of what we've found or what has been found in these studies, so the big one from the DOD was called the Millennium Cohort Study, and it was designed to track whether any of these exposures not just respiratory, but a number in general, were leading to increased diagnoses of different diseases after the war. And the VA itself has also done large-scale studies. And the results are sort of mixed. So some studies have shown increased rates of new diagnoses like asthma, COPD, eosinophilic pneumonia, and other things in previously healthy soldiers. Others haven't shown a huge correlation. So this is an ongoing area of study and also controversy because of disability ratings. And what about the environment over there? Yeah, so it can get quite hot. Afghanistan can also get cold in the wintertime, especially in the mountains, but I think the heat is the most shocking. Temperatures get up into the 120s in both countries. When you think about what these soldiers are wearing and carrying, it's even more impressive. So soldiers wear somewhere between 90 and 140 pounds of equipment between their helmet, their body armor, weapons and ammunition, water, batteries, first aid equipment, etc. Plus, the soldiers that invaded Iraq, due to the fear of chemical and biological warfare, also wore what is called MOP gear. So MOP stands for Mission-Oriented Protective Posture. 
And that consists of a thick, heavy, almost like a ski suit of sorts that's lined with charcoal, or at least the earlier versions were, along with rubber gloves and boots and a mask, you know, a gas mask and a hood. And that was worn over top of everything else I already mentioned. So as you can imagine, you know, despite drinking some, I found reports of, you know, seven to eight liters of water per day, heat stroke and heat exhaustion happened fairly frequently. Yeah, I can imagine. And I actually learned about this at my officer basic leadership course. So that was between my first and second year of medical school. And so all of the Army's medical students from my year were in Texas for this training. And on the particular day that we were learning and then being tested on how to quickly and correctly don and doff mop gear, it was quite hot. And so we were learning how to do this in preparation to actually be sent into the gas chambers for the ultimate test. So, you know, it's in the hundreds. And so, you know, you've got a bunch of kind of wimpy medical students doing all these physical things. And so, of course, we were all doing some complaining about the heat and all of our gear until one of our classmates spoke up. And he was he was a quiet, kind of goofy and unassuming guy. And so we were all shocked when he shared that he had actually been a Marine medic before going to medical school. And so he was part of the invasion of Iraq. He told us that he essentially wore mop gear in 120 degree heat for you know weeks at a time. So that shut us up pretty quickly and also gave us a lot of respect for the people that we were learning to care for. Yeah, you know, that really puts COVID PPE in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we think that we're uncomfortable when we're walking into those rooms. Let's skip ahead a little bit to some of the injuries that happened in combat, because I know this is something that we're probably going to see the ramifications of a lot as we deal with these patients. So tell me about that. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll first briefly talk about TBIs and then we can get into like the big polytrauma things. So TBIs or concussions were very common in these wars and they've even been called a signature injury of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They occurred most frequently from IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices that were placed on or near the roads so that they would go off when military vehicles went by or when soldiers went walking by. Studies now show that somewhere between 10 and 25% of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans suffered TBIs. And of those, up to 80% have comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. They've also been linked to increased rates of chronic pain and alcohol use disorders. Now, unlike more traditional wars of the past, the enemy weapon of choice in Iraq and Afghanistan was IEDs, as well as car bombs and suicide bombers. So these were often targeted against vehicles or dismounted walking soldiers or security gates or checkpoints. And they led to far more destructive injury patterns than, say, you know, gunshot wound. Overall survival during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, despite this fact, was greater than any other war in American history. But survival rates increased drastically from the beginning of the war to now, like threefold, mostly due to three interventions, tourniquets, early blood transfusions, and pre-hospital transfusions transport within one hour of injury. Medics I worked with had probably practiced hundreds to thousands of tourniquet placements over the course of their training because it's just ingrained in them how quickly someone can die of massive blood loss. Early blood transfusions, interestingly, came as a result of the Korean conflict. It was found that separating blood into its component parts allowed for more prolonged viability and storage. The time and places where these injured soldiers needed blood did not have the capabilities required to safely maintain and test and store component blood products. So in came what was called a walking blood bank. So a walking blood bank 
is a pretty labor-intensive process administratively, but essentially soldiers with typo blood and overall low antibody levels on screening tests are maintained on a roster and they're tested intermittently for infectious diseases so that when a small forward surgical team gets notified that a bunch of injured soldiers are on their way in for help. They'll put a call out over the loudspeakers for any available soldier on the roster to report to donate. And then that blood gets directly given to the injured soldiers as they arrive. They would only give crystalloid if the patient had lost peripheral pulses or was not perfusing his or her brain enough to maintain consciousness. And so this helped to reduce the lethal trauma triad of acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. Wow, that's incredibly cool. So efficiency was the key to survival in these cases. Correct. You know, the golden hour is a concept that stresses that getting a trauma patient aggressive medical care, you know, ideally within an hour of injury is key to survival. And so the goal was to get the soldiers bleeding stopped or reduced, and then their airway, breathing, and circulation optimized by a team of medics and probably one doctor or PA right at or just behind the actual combat zone. And then those soldiers would then be evacuated to a base with a small forward surgical team within an hour in order to intervene surgically to stabilize a patient before they were transported again to one of the larger military hospitals in Iraq or Afghanistan, and then to, you know, get more definitive treatment in Germany or back in the U.S. So this all sounds nice, but actually doing it within the confines of war is quite difficult. So roads were not always available, you know, like actually not available or just not safe due to IEDs. And so helicopters were actually more often used. And so with these three interventions, if a soldier arrived to the forward surgical team with a pulse, all he or she needed was a pulse, they had a 95% chance of surviving. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and I, I think this is a good example of the fact that, you know, there's a quote out there that says the only winner in war is medicine. A lot has been learned, but it was because of a lot of death, unfortunately. Yeah, at great cost and a good reminder for us as we're taking care of these veteran patients, the sacrifices that they went through and also what they've given to us so that we can continue to take care of them and also others. Just briefly, because I know that the infectious disease burden in this part of the world is unique. We often hear a lot about ESBLs and acinetobacter from this part of the world. I think that was even a, a board question that I got at some point. So just briefly, tell us a little bit about that and what you think we need to know for our veterans. As the war progressed, the percentage of soldiers returning with ESBL isolates growing from their wounds increased really significantly. When I was learning the prophylactic antibiotics to use after trauma, that's one of the things that's taught to PAs and doctors and even medics in combat casualty care. I remember just being shocked that one of the prophylactic antibiotics they carried in their med bags was ertapenem. You know, unison and fluoroquinolones and cefazolin all made sense, but ertapenem seemed like overkill in these young soldiers. But when I actually got firsthand experience during my intern year, it made a lot more sense. So the rates of ESBL E. coli and acinetobacter and just otherwise, you know, MDR pseudomonas and staph were just astounding. And research into why this happens shows that it's probably a combination of factors. So the doxycycline exposure that most soldiers took for malaria prophylaxis probably contributed. And then the just extremely long courses of antibiotics that these soldiers need for needed for, you know, mixed skin, soft tissue and bone infections after traumatic amputations that required just surgery after surgery also probably contributed. 
And then some cross-contamination from when these battlefield trauma facilities were treating local civilians as well as Iraqi and Afghani soldiers also probably contributed because antibiotic use on humans and animals is less regulated in these countries. Yeah, for sure. So that was a tremendously thorough review of the experience of war over there. How should we take that information and apply it to today when we're interacting with these patients, especially when they're seeking care at the Durham VA? We've spoken a lot about the physical risks and exposures of war, but I think it's also important to talk about what it was and often still is like for these soldiers to reintegrate back into, you know, quote unquote, real life after experiencing the hardship and trauma of war. So soldiers themselves have have very mixed feelings about their service in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I certainly cannot speak for all of them. This overview comes from a combination of my reading on the topic, as well as talking to a lot of the soldiers I served who had deployed. So many will say that it was simultaneously the best and the worst time of their life. Most felt deeply, deeply committed to protecting their fellow soldiers in arms. And regardless of all the politics surrounding the wars, they would say that they were there to do a job that they had signed up to do. Whether they actually supported the wars themselves is a much more complicated topic. War is always messy, regardless of who the enemy is. Those who are fighting it typically are not the ones making the decision that it should be fought. And then as much as attempts are made to avoid affecting or even killing civilians, civilian death, destruction of livelihoods inevitably happens. This is true even in wars where there's much clearer delineation of good versus evil, much less in a situation like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the enemy morphs or shifts over time. So most veterans who fought will say that, you know, Saddam Hussein, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, other terrorist organizations were evil and that removing them from power was a good thing. Most will also say that intentions were good in coalition attempts to rebuild these countries and that many, though not all locals, were glad that they were there. Many are able to reacclimatize and regain a new sense of normalcy within themselves and between them and their partners and families, but many are not. And that's often due to PTSD. You know, as a hospitalist, the cases where I most often see PTSD playing a role are in our patients who come in with substance abuse disorders. Certainly not all, but many, at least anecdotally from my experience, of the younger patients I admit for alcohol withdrawal have a concomitant PTSD diagnosis. And many also have other mood disorders like anxiety, depression, insomnia, chronic pain, things like that. I think that we as their doctors understand how intricately entwined these things are is important. And also, you know, just giving them time if they want it to explain all their different issues that are contributing is also important in order to give them the best chance of success and recovery. I couldn't have said that better myself. And, you know, PTSD is something that I think we've spoken about in every single one of these episodes. And it's such a good reminder that the trauma that our patients went through has a direct impact on their health and continues to do so regardless of whether they're in or outside of the hospital. Yes, for sure. There are a number of firsthand accounts out there that you can read, including a New Yorker article that we'll post to the link in the podcast notes. But I think it's hard for non-military folks, even, you know, even me who did serve in the army, but never served in the combat zone to imagine what it would be like to go through and live with these experiences. But I think it's important that we do. Tell us what they should be reading for when they look at that article, Dr. Glasgow, as a parting thought. This article really made me think. I've gone back more than once to reread it, and so I thought it would be a good way to end. The author, Sebastian Junger, says, quote, soldiers face myriad challenges when they return home, but one of the most destructive is the sense that their country doesn't quite realize that it, and not just the soldiers, went to war. 
The country approved, financed, and justified war and sent the soldiers to fight it. This is important because it returns the moral burden of war to its rightful place with the entire nation. He goes on to explain that he's no pacifist, but that our response to the wars and to these soldiers is wrong, which means that they're coming home to a country that responds typically in a couple of different ways, but overall does not share the moral responsibility of the war that they fought. His points on the societal collective burden of war is what really stuck out to me, both as I care for our patients, as well as think about what it means to be a citizen of this country and of this world. You know, I think how the way that we as medical professionals here at the VA care for our patients is a part of sharing this collective burden, taking on some of their load, whether physical or mental or both, and doing whatever we possibly can to help alleviate some or all of it. And not just those of us who are employees, but also residents and medical students, we're all a part of this. I love that perspective so much. And I love the concept of collectively sharing the burden because that's probably one of the best ways that we can help alleviate some of the pain that these conflicts caused. And the work that we do in the VHA is really a concrete way to share exactly that. So thank you for that perspective, Dr. Glasgow. And, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this really important and interesting subject. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, it's been nice being here. Thanks. Yeah. And so again, I'm just going to refer all of the residents to their curriculum website where there will be a host of references that you can read more about this war on. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration. <laughs>